Welcome to the Before the Stage podcast. This is a podcast where we go behind the scenes of the classical music industry to see what an artist's life is before the stage. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to have on the show today Gina Morgano. She is a voice teacher and vocalist in the New York City area. Um, She's performed in halls like Lincoln, um, the Lincoln Center, and also Carnegie Hall. So she's been all over the place too, from what I've read about her bio. And I think she'll have a great story to share here. She's doing some amazing projects. So we're just gonna kind of dive into this conversation. It's so great to have you on the show today, Gina. Hi, Grace. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I kind of would like you to talk about your musical journey to where you are now. So if you can kind of share about that. Sure. So as a child, my uncle bought me ballet tickets. I was a toddler and my mom didn't want me to go. She thought it was ridiculous. She thought I would make a fuss and I wouldn't be able to sit still, but he convinced her to take me. And the story goes that I was mesmerized. And for whatever reason, I came back wanting piano lessons. And so I started taking piano around four and a half. And then I started taking violin in school when it was offered and then clarinet. And I was always a very musical child. I sang in school choirs and things like that, but I was really more of an instrumentalist. And then I went to Interlochen summer camp as a violin major And there was a girl in my cabin who got cast as Cinderella in Into the Woods. And I had always loved musicals, but something about seeing her up there made me think that maybe I could do that too. And I happened to take a group voice class where we learned Caro Mio Ben, like your first 24 Italian songs and arias. Um, And I just came home wanting to study voice. And my mom thought I was crazy. She said, I haven't spent all this money in these other instruments for you to go and switch to voice. But I was very, very adamant. And so I started taking voice lessons and there was no turning back. I went to Northwestern as a vocal performance major and I was in the musical theater program. I also studied journalism while I was there. And then I went to San Francisco Conservatory as a vocal performance major, again, doing musical theater the whole time I was there, as well as studying early music and new music. And then I moved to New York. And I'm actually recording this from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at my parents' house because I've been here since the pandemic. But uh, I was in New York for almost eight years, and I was singing and doing concert work, doing church work, choral work, solo work, cabaret, and teaching. Wow. Wow. All over the place. (laughs) You like went from Chicago area to West Coast, now East Coast, (laughs) all the experiences. I actually, when I read your bio about you playing violin. I was like, oh my goodness. And then you went to interlocking because I also went there in high school as well. (laughs) Amazing. So it was such a great experience. For me, I like how you're like, it opened up your eyes to the world of like, wait, they're singing. And for me, it was like, oh wow, there's a real serious professional violin career here. (laughs) So I thought that was really cool to just connect on that point. And I was like, yeah, I went there too. (laughs) Yes. It's such a magical place. Yeah, it was lots of fun. So you did journalism and you did your um, performance, you know, singing degree. And then you went into your master's and did 
also like way more musical stuff. Can you talk about maybe that transition of why you decided to study early music and all of that? I'm curious about this. Sure. So when I applied to Northwestern as an undergrad, they had a short-lived music and journalism program. So I entered college intending to get my bachelor's in music and my master's in journalism. While I was there in undergrad, I really fell in love with acting and it reinforced my passion for singing. And I sort of knew that I wanted to follow the artistic path rather than the journalism path. Not that there's no art in journalism, but it really reinforced my love for what I did. That said, I was there and it was a five-year program. That fifth year was exclusively journalism. So I thought about not continuing. I was convinced to continue, get the degree. But throughout that time, I knew that my heart really was with the music. So I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. And then actually, I should share this. I didn't get into grad school. So for anyone out there who is dealing with rejection or hasn't gotten into programs or is afraid of not getting into programs, I didn't get in anywhere because I really hadn't been studying or practicing that whole year. I was doing journalism exclusively. And by some miracle, I got off the wait list at SFCM. And so that's where I went. (laughs) Um, uh, One of my best friends had gone out there and she spoke highly of it. That's why I applied. It was a, you know, a big transition to the West Coast, but I went out there and it could not have been a more incredible experience. It was the perfect place for me. I love that it truly is a vocal performance program. So yes, it is classical voice and opera centric, but it really encouraged exploring all facets of your instrument. There is a musical theater program. There is a new music ensemble. There is a thriving early music program that just opened up this whole world to me of, well, early music, but the techniques and the musicology that goes into doing that repertoire well, I really fell in love with. I loved learning about ornamentation and learning how to use my voice in ways that wasn't so bel canto perfect, like, you know, singing some of the other repertoire. It just had a lot more room for creativity and flexibility, which is why I loved it. That was really interesting because you're you're like, I got rejected. <laughs> I remember that transition of applying for my master's. It was just, it was so stressful. I only got accepted into one school as well. Like, it, And then I was like, well, I guess this is the one I'm going to. <laughs> and it ended up being like a great fit. Like totally, like I went there and I was like, this feels right. And then as I was auditioning, I was like, okay this is probably going to be a great fit. Like there's nothing that's holding me back. People that, you know, dealing with rejection is hard. It's so hard. Do you have any tips for going through those experiences and fighting kind of (laughs) fighting or, or just, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like getting through rejection. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So there's a couple of different angles to take. The first is realizing that it only takes one. Yes. So it doesn't matter how many rejections you get. The whole point is to find 
your people, find that yes, find that opportunity that is truly aligned with who you are. It doesn't matter if you get one rejection or a thousand rejections. Some people like to say that every rejection is a step toward that yes. So I think that is a great mindset to have. I also think that it's really important to remember what you have to offer and to develop a mindset that does not rely on external validation for determining your worth and your ability as an artist, your contributions as an artist. And that's something that came to me well after grad school. But I think it's so, so, so important that artists start to take ownership over their artistic output, over their creativity, over their careers, over their lifestyle, all of those things, instead of placing it at the hands of the gatekeepers to determine what your life and what your artistic output is going to be. That seriously was a game changer for me when I realized that. Uh, And I also, I think I've said it in several episodes, like the moment I realized I created the best art was when I didn't rely on others to determine what I was creating, which is like, wow. You know, it was a confirmation for me being like, oh, (laughs) that's where my good art is anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the freedom to express the best of you to share with the world the gifts that you have, the passions you have, the inspirations you have, the causes that are important to you to be able to serve without everything being about getting accolades and getting applause and getting validation. Just, you know, if you want to sing something, if you want to play something, go sing it, go play it. Yeah. And it's so much, I think that's what brings us back to why we really do our crafts like at the heart of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Would you like to share about your projects you've been doing now that you've, I mean, I guess you're, you're quite the entrepreneur. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes. So I have a podcast called The Practice Parlor, and it is about the practices that help artists thrive on stage and off. I'm a firm believer that the joy is in the process, the joy is in the journey, and I also believe in healthy life, healthy art, healthy art, healthy life. And so the podcast is about everything from inclusion to faith to business to technique to self-care and wellness, and it's all of the practices that artists engage in to help them grow as humans and as artists. So that has been a giant passion project for me. I also have the Self-Care for Singers Facebook group where we talk about all things wellness and lifestyle. And then I have a new program coming up that I'm really excited about, and it is called the Practice Society. And this is a collective of artists who are coming together to ask deep questions, to have uplifting, inspirational conversation, to hold each other accountable, to grow and develop their practices. And this starts in June. So I am really, really excited for the doors to open for this first iteration of the Practice Society. Yeah, no, that sounds super exciting. 
The Practice Society is my new group program that starts in June. It is a collective of artists coming together to ask deep questions, to share uplifting conversation, to develop their practices, and to grow together as artists. My work is all about helping people to find their voice and to share it with the world so that they can make a positive impact. And the Practice Society is for artists who want to do just that. I'm so excited for it to open up. It's based around the pillars of identity, wellness, and growth. And I'm just really excited for this new community to start. So it starts at the beginning of June, right? Yes. What kind of inspired you to create a program like this? So I've been dreaming it up in various iterations, actually for a few years. And I teach voice. I teach at high school and I have my own studio and I teach at another music school. But through teaching voice and through my own work as an artist, I have really come to become more passionate about training the metaphorical voice, training the whole artist, rather than simply teaching people the technique of how to sing better. It's about learning how to amplify your inner voice, learning how to share the best of you, how to articulate your creative ideas and bring them to the world in in order to make a positive impact and positive change. And I see so many artists struggling with, as we talked at the beginning, struggling with rejection and feeling down on themselves and releasing their power to other powers that be rather than taking that ownership over their own artistry and realizing that what they have to offer is not only enough, but it is desperately needed and it has the opportunity to impact people. And so I really want to help people to develop this greater self-knowledge, develop this values-based artistry, develop their processes and their systems so that they can more efficiently create and offer their highest creative contributions. I really love that Um, because I know I struggled with a long time. I think we talked about this earlier, you know, thinking there's something or someone, you know, the gatekeepers that hold you back from doing what you really dream of doing in your career. And the more you learn about (laughs) being in this career, the more you realize it's, oh, they really just took ownership for their career. And from there, I mean, they obviously made connections and networked, but it was really somebody who took ownership. And and that's the biggest key. It's not about the gatekeeper anymore. It's like, if anything, you were your own gatekeeper. And, you know, but I think, I think it's something that I've been obviously wrestling through. Can you kind of speak to maybe some moments where you noticed yourself causing that gatekeeping, if you're willing to talk about that? Yes. Oh, that is such a great question. So I think the pivotal moment for me was a couple of years of being in New York and I wasn't getting cast in anything. And I was so down on myself and I wasn't performing as much as I would like. 
and I was working various day jobs. And I sort of just had this aha moment of, I need to make a change. I need to do something different and I need to take control over this because things are not going the way that I want them to continue going. And I saw friends doing cabarets and I thought, man, it would be so fun to do a cabaret. And I had done all of these recitals throughout my schooling, but I didn't draw the link between a recital and the cabaret. And so I was talking about it with my voice teacher and he said, you need to schedule it. You need to get a date on the calendar and then you will figure out your show. And that was the best advice. And during that time, I also was working with a stylist for headshots, but this stylist was not only about the clothes that you wore. She was about doing all of that inner work to project your inner style outward. It it was incredible. The coolest Jessica Meyer inherent style. Um, And I was also working with my acting teacher, Jen Waldman, who had a program called Artist Alliance that was largely based on Simon Sinek's work of Start With Why. And so all of this values-based work was happening at the same time that I had this itch to perform and do a cabaret. And I did the cabaret, and then I realized this is just like doing a recital. Why don't I do this more often? I do know how to do this. I thought that I didn't. I thought that it was something very far out there that was a whole new skill set that was, you know, self-producing my own shows. I thought, well, you know, who does that? It's this huge uphill battle, mountain to overcome, all those things. And then I realized I've been doing this my whole life. (laughs) And why shouldn't I do more of it? And I had such a great time. And from there, I started producing my own concerts, producing benefit concerts for people. I created a course, Create Your Cabaret, to help other people develop their shows. And that really was a pivotal moment because it became more about why I was doing the work and about sharing my gifts and really making it more audience-focused rather than self-focused, realizing that people wanted to come see me perform and that I had something to offer them that could change them in a positive way. And that aha really changed everything for me. For those out there that are not don't know the difference between a recital and a cabaret. Can you make that difference about why this different style of recital was so scary for you to think about performing until you like the light bulb went off and you were like, oh, wait, I can totally do this. Yes. So I believe things are slowly changing now for the better. But when I was in school, a recital very much followed a strict format There was very little room for audience interaction. Um, You pretty much played your classical sets and that was that. And when I was developing my recitals, I had this pool that I wanted to theme them. I wanted to incorporate some musical theater in, and I was able to do that to a certain extent, but the audience interaction piece was definitely missing. So For cabarets in New York, for anyone who's unfamiliar, there are specific venues where 
there's tables, there's food and drink. And then the cabarets are mostly musical theater songs, popular songs, theatrical art songs, things like that. And there's patter in between. There's speaking. And there's the opportunity to have a conversation with the artist. That's what I believe cabaret truly is, is a conversation. And there in theater, there's something known as the fourth wall that you don't break. But in cabaret, it's all about breaking that fourth wall and talking directly to the audience members. And something about doing a whole concert in a different style of music, something about having to speak directly to the audience, something about having to hire my own musicians and work out all the logistics of self-producing, the financial component, you know, was I going to be able to afford to do this? Um, There were just all of these questions and doubts in my head. But once I did it, I realize how natural it is for us as artists and for especially for classical musicians who are already used to giving recitals. And I, my hope is that classical recitals will move more towards that cabaret format of conversation as we move forward. Yeah, I hope so too. Actually, this brings up, I had a guest on a while ago, Sarah Whitney, and she's a violinist performer. She's also in um, Sybarite Five. They're like a quintet group. And she talked about, she started a little concert series called Beyond the Notes. And it was literally, she had the guests or the audience members, I guess, (laughs) write down questions as they listened to like her first set of music. And then she would bring them like, read the questions in the middle of performance and like kind of have that interactive moment with the audience, which I was like, mind blown when she said that because I was like wait yeah that makes sense um having like a little Q&A mid your recital or something and but she said it was just such a warming experience to have that you know just like have more interaction and now that you know you're talking about a cabaret and I was like oh yeah that sounds like a lot of fun (laughs) and that's the part I love in recitals is the after with the snacks (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And I think as classical musicians, we are trained so much towards perfectionistic tendencies and doing it right. And this idea of the right way and the wrong way and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And for me, cabaret and self-producing and creating my own projects and all these entrepreneurial endeavors, it's really been so freeing. And it's been a huge aha that there is no right. If, if you are truly owning your artistry, then you get to follow your artistic impulses and your intuition, your insights, your ideas, and you get to make things better than they've typically been done. No, it's so true. And sitting like uh, on the entrepreneurial track now and understand people building like offers and building like their, their like packaging essentially their excellence in some way to share it with someone else to help them. <laughs> and understanding like there are so many different ways you can package whatever you want literally to sell to someone um, in like the business world. And so many different methodologies to think about it and strategies. And like, you know, it can go on and on for a while, (laughs) for sure. And then I sat there kind of 
realizing we can do such entrepreneurial things within our music, within how we interact with our audience and our shows. And yeah, we have these ways we've been trained that is so traditional that we think, okay, it's this way or it's the highway. (laughs) And like, I can't do it another way. Otherwise, which now that I bring it up, there's two concerts um, things that I went to and that they were both really amazing. And, because they kind of broke that that fourth wall that you talked about. And my friend Alyssa Tong did this Quest Concerts, and she had, basically, it was like a Zoom call with all these musicians, and they were performing while having a, like, kind of escape room aspect to it. So it was all virtual because of, you know, where we are right now. And so she created this concert series of essentially bringing this audience in on Zoom and having questionnaire, you know, like having questions and rooms, escape room kind of with the concert. It's a really great project. I really enjoyed it. They'll probably be going back in the fall with the program, but it was just like an amazing concept. And then she made it come to life. And then I was like, we should have more of these, if not in person (laughs) someday. (laughs) Which would be, wow, that would be quite the feat, but it would be probably really cool. And then my other friend, she played a concert like last weekend, a recital, and she didn't stop people from clapping in between any of her movements because I think she had families there, you know, her students. And she was just like, what happens is what happens. And I loved it because I think she even was talking about things between each movement as she played, really guiding the audience through the concert because that's really how we get people to come back is we educate them about the pieces, what we're doing on our instruments and breaking that fourth wall. Yes. I love that. One of my best friends, Sarah Silvermansky, she plays with the San Antonio symphony. And also she has a chamber group Agarita in San Antonio, and they are doing the most creative programming. They are, pairing with other artists and bringing seemingly disparate pieces together on the same program. So they might have a concert in a historical space that is paired with a lighting designer, or they had a concert that was paired with food and cooking. Um, We have another one that is with a sculpturist. And then they have songs like they had strange fruit paired with Aaron Copeland and Charles Ives all in the same program. This sounds amazing. (laughs) It's incredible. And I just think there's so much room for artists to use their creativity and to express what lights them up, what they're passionate about to give back to causes they believe in through their artistry. If we are willing to look at the possibilities and not say no to ourselves before other people say no to us. And stop being our own gatekeepers. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess I would like you to talk about getting over that gatekeeping in, in yourself and creating these, this amazing, you know, you, your cabarets and then a course and just like helping enabling people to go out and do this. What are some mindset tips that you've been able to give others th- as they work with you in this way? And maybe some that you've like, found out about yourself as you're going through these things? Yes. So I would say the number one thing is to be rooted in purpose. 
So I mentioned Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, and I've done personal why discoveries, but I think anybody can get more in touch with the reasons that they are in art in the first place. And Brene Brown also has an amazing values exercise where she gives you a word bank and you look at these at this list of words and choose the ones that resonate most with you. And so it really is about getting in touch with your values, with your why, with your purpose. And once you know why you're doing this in the first place, then the external factors sort of drift away because it becomes easier to pursue the things you're passionate about because you know that you're doing them for the right reasons. And it becomes a reason that is greater than yourself. Oh my goodness. That was just like quotable. <laughs> it was so good because it's so true. I did some I think it was, yeah, it was in like March and April <laughs> when everything was shutting down last year. That's when I really sat down and was like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Where am I going with this? What do I want? And really wrestled through like, what are my values? What is my purpose? Like, what what do I want to do? And it's such a powerful move because you stop, you really do, I mean, you still sometimes have moments where you external validation. You're like, oh, <laughs> somebody <laughs> validate what I'm doing. But then you realize that won't come from outside. It really will come from internally knowing your purpose and stepping into whatever it is that you feel so strongly called to do. What do you feel so strongly called to do, Gina? <laughs> sure. So I believe in honoring the light in each person. I want to help people to see their own goodness and to share that goodness because I believe that it is by each person offering the best of themselves that we can then come together collectively and have a ripple effect that creates this positive change that is so much greater than anything that any one person could do but it takes everybody seeing their inherent value and putting it out there in the world. Yeah, it does. Oh, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Do you have anything else to add? <laughs> yeah, I, you know what I do? I want to mention, I've mentioned these three pillars of the practice society and the first pillar identity is what we've just been talking about. It's developing that self-knowledge, self-awareness, doing all that values work. But the second pillar is about wellness. And I think that's really important to bring up for artists as well, because it is so easy for artists to, I don't use the word falter, but for their mental and physical health to suffer, whether it be through an injury or whether it be through um, just traumatic experiences that they're going through or whether it be dealing with rejection and all of those things. And I think it is so, so, so important that artists learn how to take care of themselves. We are just so quick to sacrifice our own well-being in pursuit of our art, but by doing that, it makes it more difficult to engage with the thing that we love. 
So true. And I, I shared about this on your podcast a few days ago, which will be coming out <laughs> sometime. <laughs> and yeah, I've dealt with so many health things, <laughs> so much on the health side and knowing that, yeah, you can really, because when I dealt with a playing injury and that was a big identity crisis of being like, it's, it felt like, oh no, like what I'm pursuing is now hurting me. <laughs> And that's that's a whole mindset trigger right there. Um, because then when you start recovering, I mean, you discover things about your body awareness. And I think the value of getting a sustainable practice in healthy mindset, in um, healthy, you know, exercise or movement. And there's, oh my goodness, there's so much to unpack there because <laughs> you can have so much um baggage from past of like you know and how you work out or how you do things in health um because it's just how you're raised or your environment or you're in a in a sport or something and sometimes you think that oh unless I'm like really exhausted then I did it right you know and then you realize that's not sustainable for the long term because you might have a concert that night and if you crashed at the gym and went too <laughs> hardcore on something you know it's yeah so it's so, so much too I guess, how could you speak to that? Okay, there's two things that come to mind. The first is that I think it's really important to create a distinction between yourself and your instrument, um, especially as a singer, you know, our voices are part of us. So our identity is so wrapped up with our voice. And if our voice is off, it, we feel like we're off. But when I talk about developing your voice, I don't just mean your physical voice because that could go away tomorrow and that could go away for any instrument. And I think it's so important that we find a way to be content and healthy and to find other outlets for expressing our creativity so that we are not putting all of our eggs in this one basket and having our whole world depend on one thing, right? If you break your arm and you can't play the violin for a period of time, how is that not going to destroy you mentally, right? We have to develop um, a mindset and a way of our expressing our creativity and an artistry that is so much broader than just doing that one thing. Then I was just going to say, then the other thing is really developing preventative practices, and yeah. rather than being reactionary for if an injury occurs or if you're going through a busy time in life and you're getting burn out, burned out, it's developing these healthy practices now so that we are ready to deal with the hard times when they inevitably do come. And it's so valuable if you create, I mean, it doesn't have to be something big, like running a mile every morning, not even that big. No, it can be as simple as like just doing some like stretches for 10 minutes or, you know, a little bit of yoga or just something small, <laughs> but sustainable. And, and for like health and mindset, maybe it's like, you just make sure you have those 10 minutes of reading or 10 minutes of journaling or whatever it is that really helps you recenter, you know, all those thoughts going up on in your head. I think people forget how simple it can be. Yes. It does not need to be these grand ambitions and grand plans, but it's about truly, here it goes back to self-awareness again, but it's about truly knowing what it is that you need in this moment. 
So can you talk about the last pillar since we've kind of gone through each pillar? Sure. <laughs> the last pillar is growth. And I was toying with what to call this pillar. I was thinking of calling it practice. I was thinking of calling it process, but I decided to call it growth because it really is about how we make progress. And it is about developing systems, routines, structures that will support you and sustain you for the long haul. So this is where we really do dig into craft and your actual practice process, but also the other systems in your life so that you can have a plan of action and a plan that is reliable for moving you forward. You don't have to leave the progress to chance or to hoping or to wishing. That's so good. Can you maybe give us some of the tips for some of those things? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so the first thing I will say is talking about planning and goal setting. And, you know, what is it that you truly seek out to do? What do you want to do? And are you going about that haphazardly or have you outlined and reverse engineered action steps and milestones to get you there? In the program, I'll go through all of my, you know, the planners I use and the planning techniques and the tools that I use. But I think that is really important for artists to spend time actively planning and strategizing. The other thing is your practice process. And do you have a process for practicing? Do you have a system and a structure for your daily practice? A lot of artists will enter a practice session and not use that time so effectively. The time will be unfocused. The time will be spent doing long chunks or repetitions without really taking the time to reflect and analyze and assess what worked, what didn't work. I believe in always entering a practice session with a clear intention and exiting a practice session with learnings, ahas, burning questions, and things to do next. So I've actually developed, it's called the practice planner, and that's going to be a, a gift that you get with the program, but it's a very specific process for practicing that inevitably will move you forward if you follow the practice. Um, the other thing for growth is recognizing what resources you have around you and not relying simply on yourself, finding a support system and a support team and seeing who you need in your corner to help move you forward more quickly and getting very, very clear on your relationships and which relationships you need to invest more in and which, where you can help other people. So collaboration is a part of that as well. And I love that the practicing, you're like, you leave the session with ahas, burning questions. Here's one other thing that you had there. Um, yeah, because I find when I leave really satisfied in a practice session was like, I worked through a technique for a good while and I discovered maybe something new or I found a recentering 
that feels more, you know, solidified. And then also those burning questions. Oh my goodness. Those are what bring you back the next day because you're like, I started discovering something, uncovering something within the music and I'm seeing something new here, jot it down. And then you're like, but I have to know more. (laughs) It's such a powerful tool, the burning questions one. Yeah. I love that. The system that you've put in place there for the practicing. Um, And then collaboration and accountability and finding kind of your your group, your squad, your people that really can pour into you, you pour back into them and create a safe space for you to really thrive in your career and create your art. I love how you bring the people through this journey of discovering their values and their system, like their values and who they are, developing you know, healthy, sustainable habits. And then finally, you know, you leave them off with this, like, you aren't going to end from here. (laughs) Like, it's not a, you know, like, see you later. But it's like, okay, let's see how we can now take where you've gone and build this into your day-to-day life. And so that, you know, you really leave with this full transformation at the end. Yeah, that's the goal. That's the purpose. So I'm really excited to bring people along in the journey. Yeah, it sounds like a great program. I'm excited to tell more people about it. So (laughs) thank you. Yeah. Um, So I guess kind of closing out the interview today, I have some questions for you um, that I like to ask at the end. And usually it's kind of like, what is your favorite composer? My favorite. It's a leading question, I feel like. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, it is so, so hard to pick one. I will say that I have a strong passion for Robert Schumann and Clara also, but the Schumann. So when I was in grad school doing journalism, I did a thesis project and I was actually able to do a screenplay as my thesis. And it was all about the lives of the Schumanns and using the song cycle Frauen Liebe und Leben as the backdrop and the format for the screenplay so they're close to my heart (laughs) i kind of want to find this now (laughs) um okay and then what's your favorite like style genre um way of doing like playing music performing music this can be taken in any direction really yeah so i will say that my bread and butter is the music that straddles the line between classical styles and more contemporary musical theater. So theatrical art song is what I like to call it. Um, That's my favorite. Do you have any examples to kind of help people wrap their mind around what this is? Yes. Yes, (laughs) Um, So Francesca's music in the Bridges of Madison County by Jason Robert Brown. Um, A lot of Sondheim's music. Um, Leonard Bernstein's music, um, that music that is right in between. Is it musical theater? Is it opera? I don't know. I love that. Um, okay. And then this is getting more on the business side of stuff. Um, do you have any organizational tips or tricks or software? (laughs) Yes, sure. Okay. Um, I use Trello. I have tons of boards organized in there for everything from content planning to keeping track of roles and repertoire that I'm working on. I love that. Uh, I mentioned 
planners and planning before. So I am a huge fan of the Cultivate What Matters Power Sheets. So that's for goal setting. And then I use I use Emily Lay's Simplified Planner uh, for my day-to-day. And then I also have the Horatio Printing Dream Planner, and I use that for seasonal planning. And I also use that for my teaching and lesson planning. Um, that one is a Christian planner, so that may or may not resonate with different people, but I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is um, the most beautiful planner I have ever seen. Just the paper quality is so great. And Polly Payne, the founder, is a friend of mine. So I sing her praises. And then do you have an actionable tip to leave the audience with today? Oh, yes. But this could go in so many different directions. <laughs> okay. My actionable tip is to ask yourself, why do you make art? And what makes you come alive? And then when you answer those questions, ask yourself, how can you bring that to an audience on your own? And then where can people find you? People can find me on my website, ginamorgano.com. The Practice Parlor podcast is on iTunes and on my YouTube channel. I am also on Instagram and Facebook at Gina Morgano. Thank you really so much for being on the show. This is a great um, episode, just like walking through your different methods and like your transformation, the process for your program, but also just like learning about you and your story and going through these mindset hurdles. Like it was really a pleasure to have you and talk about all these things. It's been a joy chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me on, Grace. Thanks for listening to the Before the Stage podcast. I hope that you enjoyed the show today. Don't miss an episode and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you have any questions or topics for Before the Stage, feel free to write me at beforethestage at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the show. Hey there, do you run a podcast? Well, here is a podcast secret you might like. The podcast editors. This team of editors help before this stage create this quality content for you. It's a vital part of the podcast team that keeps the show going. If you need help with editing or want one last thing to do with managing a podcast, contact the podcast editors today. Check out their services at thepodcasteditors.net. Also, it will be linked down in the show notes. Thanks for listening.